0: Well, we are back in our study of Matthew's Gospel, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17, and we're going to see the grief-bearing, sorrow-carrying king. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, and I'll read those in just a second. But it has been a while since we've been in Matthew, and so I just want to give you a brief recap of where we most recently left off. I'm not going all the way back to ch- chapter 1, but I just want to cover chapters 5 through 7, because right, right as we get to chapter 8, we, we're going to see that Jesus is coming down from a mountain in verse 1 of chapter 8. And before that, he was up on the mountain. And so he has been given the, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and in the end of Matthew chapter seven, if you, if you just take your eyes up to verse 28 and 29 of chapter seven, Matthew says, when Jesus finished saying these things, The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for this is why they're astonished. He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of their scribes. And so Matthew ends the the, the recording of the Sermon on the Mount, highlighting specifically the authority of Jesus. There's no one else who talked like him, the scribes didn't talk like this. And so he had authority that was obvious to, to those who were listening to him. Jesus spoke and taught with authority. And so the authoritative teachings of chapter five, six, and seven are going to be followed in chapters eight and nine with authoritative action. He's going to his authority is going to be on display in what he's doing in chapters eight and nine and this dynamic of speaking and doing, this is actually how Matthew's entire gospel is organized. And we looked at this at the the beginning of our study, but Matthew's gospel itself is organized in such a way that there's this back and forth between a narrative section and a teaching section, a narrative section and a teaching section. And this back and forth is between what Jesus says and then what he does. And we saw, in fact, Matthew 4.23 is a kind of a summary sentence that Matthew gives at the outset of Jesus' ministry, but in, in Matthew 4.23, Matthew says that Jesus' ministry consisted of going throughout the region, teaching, proclaiming, and healing. And so his ministry, and we've said this, hopefully this isn't new to you, but the ministry of Jesus, as recorded by Matthew, is a ministry of words and works. That's what his ministry is. He, he, he teaches with words, and then he teaches with works. And something we're going to continue to see about these two aspects of ministry is that they're directly connected. They go together. You can't separate them. You can't say, well, I just want to, I just want to listen to his teachings. And you can't listen to his teachings without listening to his doings. The words and works go together. And, and so he, he performs these works, and, and his purpose isn't simply so that people would look at them. Rather, they validate the words that he says. And the words aren't simply to listen to. Rather, they clarify the works that he does. Jesus didn't come with just a ministry of words, nor did Jesus only come with a ministry of works. He came with a ministry of words and works, and they are meant to be understood together. And that's what Matthew is doing as he's going back and forth between teaching and doing, narrative and and discourse. And so, after coming down off the mountain at the end of chapter seven, after this, this long sermon on the mount, the longest discourse that Matthew records, Matthew, then in chapter eight, our passage this morning, what we're gonna see is he records three miraculous works that Jesus performed. And so I want you to follow along as I read Matthew chapter eight, verses one through 17. You can follow along as I read. Verse one, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. They're talking about Jesus. And behold, A centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this from the centurion, he marveled and he said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, go, Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Verse 14, and when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Jesus touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and she began to serve him. That evening they brought to him, that's to Jesus, many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, quote, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Well, let's let's pray. Father, as we look at these, these miraculous works of Jesus, I pray that we would see and behold the power of the cross, that we would behold the king who came to Bear our burdens and, and carry our sorrows. And so I pray that in, in this time that, that you would accomplish what only you can. And I pray, as we just sang, in my life and in the lives of all of your people and in the lives of those who are gathered here who aren't part of your people, Lord, I pray that your will would be done. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, as we work through this outline, I have four points here. Four points working through these 17 verses. And so we're just, what, what we're going to do, haven't been with us, uh, we, we read our passage and then we just work through them, verse by verse, section through section. So the outline is simply to help you get a grasp of what, what's the main point of this section. And so we've grouped, these, these could be all separate sermons, but we've grouped them together because I think Matthew does it together to say, here's three healings, and then I think verses 16 and 17 are kind of the summary. And so let, let's the outline we're going to see, Jesus and a leper, verses 1 through 4. And then second, we'll see Jesus and a centurion, verses 5 through 13. Then third, we'll see Jesus and Peter's mother-in-law, verses 14 and 15. Then finally, Jesus, the suffering servant, which is kind of Matthew's summary statement of all that happened in verses 1 through 15. So work through those four. Let's start there with verses one through four, Jesus and a leper. And so we look there at verse one, when Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And so like, like I said, he's just finished the Sermon on the Mount. He comes down, and there's still a great crowd. There's a great crowd gathering around him during the Sermon on the Mount, so it's still with him. The crowd is following him. In verse two, and behold, that, that's the word. It's, it's behold, and look, look. There's a crowd following him, but here's a single man who comes to him. A leper came and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now we have to recognize what's going on here with this man before Jesus. First of all, notice what this man wants. He comes to Jesus and he doesn't say, hey, Lord, can you heal me? That's not what he says. Instead, he comes and he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So, so it's an issue of cleanliness. Now, now his healing is gonna be incorporated in his cleanliness, but, but being clean is the issue at hand. And Matthew's, Matthew's audience would have readily recognized that. This man with leprosy, with this skin disease, was unclean. And that affected everything about his life. And so his greatest need was to be clean. And so this man, this disease, this, today it's called Hansen's disease most likely, but it's some type of skin disease and it would infect your skin and you'd have white spots and sores and your body would be covered with these things, which is, which is bad in and of itself. But because of the nature of this disease, it also meant this, this man was, was an outcast. In fact, he was quarantined indefinitely. He couldn't be around anyone. He was an outcast because of the nature of the disease. He was isolated. You see that the Old Testament law, there are regulations. In fact, you can can write down Leviticus 13 and 14. These are two chapters that are are dedicated to, to how to treat this specific disease. But, but Leviticus 13, 46, here's just one verse that, that kind of gives you the, 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 the sense of, of what's going on here. This is what the law says. This is what Moses says in Leviticus thirteen forty six. This person who has this disease, Moses writes, he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And, and it, it must be noted, there was no cure for the disease. It, people didn't get often, they weren't often cured of this. All that could be done would be, hey, go wait in your colony and see if one day you wake up and it's miraculously gone. That, that was all that they could do. And so to make things even worse, something else that, that, that was required by law of this man is if he was ever around anyone else, which wasn't often, but if he was, he was required to cry out, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. Maybe you've read the, the, the scarlet letter Right, she had to wear this letter so everyone knew. Well, this was, he didn't have a letter. He had to scream it out. I'm unclean. Stay away from me. I'm unclean. Stay away with me. So, so his interaction with humans was him saying, you don't want to get near me. Because he was unclean and he was infectious. And if anyone would touch him purposely or, or on accident, they then had to go through this process, this quarantine process, and have this, this ritual cleansing before they could be incorporated back into fellowship. Needless to say, lepers had no friends, they had no family, they had no jobs, they had nothing. In fact, they would would often form colonies and live far away from everyone else together. And so, when this man comes up to Jesus, there's a great crowd around him, and he kneels before Jesus, he's taking a major risk. And so, he's breaking cultural norms by by being around a crowd, but he does so because he's got to get before Jesus, and he wants to be clean. That's what he said when he approached Jesus. Maybe he'd heard of, of the miraculous works that Jesus had performed in the region, or maybe he had a friend who had, who had been healed. Whatever the motivation, this man approaches Jesus and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And it's funny, I'd forgotten that we were singing that song before the sermon, but, but it's almost as if this man had heard Jesus teach his disciples how to pray. If you will. It's almost as if he's saying, Lord, your will be done. I know you can clean me. You can make me clean. And if you will, It'll happen thy will be done. This man is confident in his approach to Jesus. In fact, if this man walks away from this interaction with Jesus without being healed, he knows, and he wants Jesus to know that he knows that the only reason for him to walk away still unclean is because Jesus has chosen not to heal him. He knows he can be healed. And his confidence is in the one that he's kneeling before. And he's totally dependent upon the will of this one. And notice how Jesus responds, verse three. He stretches out his hand and he touched him and he said, I will, I will be clean. This man isn't kept in suspense for long. He says, I will be clean. And so those are the words and and the words of Jesus are powerful, right? We can agree on that. His words can heal. We're gonna see that in the very next interaction. When Jesus says be clean, that is really all that's needed. Diseases and demons flee at his word. But Jesus doesn't only verbally affirm his willingness to heal this man. Did you notice what Jesus did before he said, I will be clean? Beginning of verse three, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Jesus reaches out and touches this unclean outcast, this diseased man. And this matters because when people touch unclean people, the clean becomes unclean. And so Jesus, the clean rabbi, touches the unclean leper. And in every other instance, when when a clean person touched a leper, the uncleanliness of the leper would pass to the clean person so that the person who was once clean on account of their touching and interaction with the leper became unclean. That's how it went. That was the law of nature. That's the law that, that Moses had given. This is what happens when you touch a leper. But notice what happens here. Jesus touches an unclean leper. And we see a reversal. Jesus stretches out his hand, touches him, says, I will be clean, and immediately his leprosy was cleansed. It's a reversal there. Jesus, the clean, touches the unclean, and instead of him becoming unclean, the unclean becomes clean. It's the touch of Jesus. He didn't have to do this. But in this particular case, he reaches out and touches the diseased man. He'd probably never been touched ever since he'd had this disease, And yet here's Jesus, a clean man saying, I am willing to heal you and I'm gonna touch you in the process. When Jesus comes in contact with defilement, he is never defiled. Far from it, his touch has the power to cleanse defilement. Jesus wills to heal the leper and the leper is healed. This is a restorative touch that comes from Jesus. Jesus. In verse four, Jesus says to him, having, having healed him, he says, see to it that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, this isn't uncommon for Jesus to make this request of someone. Don't, don't tell others. That, that Don't go around publicizing what's happened. Now, Jesus isn't ashamed of people knowing. He's like, no, I don't want people to know because I don't really like that I have to do this. No, this is simply Jesus recognizing, I have a mission here. I have a ministry to carry out. And, and the more that people know, the more people are gonna come and be like, hey, you're the promised one. You're the Messiah. Be our king. And, and he's only gonna be king when his time comes, when he lays down his life. And so he says, don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself Share yourself to the priest and, and offer the gift that Moses commanded. And so Jesus here is pointing this man to obey what Moses had commanded. And I mentioned Leviticus 13 and 14 a few minutes ago, and it's there in that, those chapters that Moses gives some very specific commands regarding when someone is, is healed. They have to be inspected by the priest. And the one thing required is, is, is that the leper that's been healed or apparently healed has to go in and offer the sacrifice, a gift at the altar, and show themselves to the priest, and then the priest then says, oh yes, it is. Now go shave and do all this, and, and then you can be restored, or no, no, actually, you're not clean. So the priest verifies if in fact he has been cleaned. And so Jesus says, go do what Moses told you to do. But, but notice why Jesus says do that. At the end of verse four, go offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them Now people disagree, well what is the them? Is it to the people? Is it so that he might be restored? I think the proof that Jesus is referring to isn't simply proof that he's clean, that's part of it, but rather the primary proof that Jesus wants the priest to see is not that this man has been miraculously healed, that he has been healed, but by whom he has been miraculously healed. So Jesus says, go, follow the law of Moses, because in so doing, by offering this gift commanded by Moses, you're actually gonna give evidence to the priest that I have healed you that I am on the scene and the lepers are being healed. The same thing in, in, in Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist says, hey, are you the one, that's the, are you the promised Messiah or should we wait longer? And he says, one of the things he says is tell John that the lepers are being healed. And so the fact that Jesus says, go offer this, this, this gift to the priest to prove to them that I'm here. That, that's his point. And so in this sense, the law would point to the one who came to fulfill it the priests would be forced to see that Jesus is the one with great authority. Not that, he, not that he has to, they won't be forced to believe that he's the Messiah, but he must at least be taken seriously because he has healed a leper. And so by, by encouraging this man to, to obey the law, he is showing that the law points actually to Jesus himself. Well, it leads to the next healing. Let's look, secondly, at Jesus and the centurion, verses 5 through 13. So, so Jesus here, after, after this miraculous encounter, he shifts the scene to Capernaum. And so, this is the place that would be the, the, the center hub of the ministry of Jesus. In verse 5, we read, When Jesus had come into Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him. Again, he approaches Jesus, and the centurion appeals to him. Verse 6, he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home. Not only that, he's suffering terribly. And so Jesus says, in hearing this request, he says, I will come and heal him. And so the centurion comes to Jesus and he says, I have a servant or a slave who's who's paralyzed. I care about this this servant of mine. And he's suffering, so it's not a skin disease, but this physical ailment. And the centurion is is a man with great authority. We're gonna see that as as he talks with Jesus. But this, this Roman soldier comes to Jesus now, it's significant for us because, but because here, so where's the, the leper would have been ex- excluded because of his disease, this man would have been excluded because of his race. This is a Gentile. And so a Roman soldier comes to Jesus and, and says, please help. And so, so, so Jesus is overturning these, these excluded classes of people. Or the assumptions. And so this, this Roman centurion, the, the, the title centurion means, I mean, it literally means a, a hundred people. He had at least a hundred other Roman soldiers under him, at least, and so this is a man of significant authority. And more than that, he's in a Jewish town. And so the Jews were under the rule of the Romans, and this centurion represents the Roman rule and, and the Roman possession of the land of the Israelites, and so this Roman Empire was seen as a great threat. And so this man shows up and, and his mere appearance is evidence of the Roman occupation. Nevertheless, this man seeks out Jesus, which is certainly a sign of humility, but there's more at play than his humility. His faith is, is amazing. I mean, it amazes Jesus. Notice what, what he says when Jesus says, he, he says, heal my servant. Jesus says, I'm gonna come. Which would have violated cultural norms, right? For, for a, a Gentile to go into, for him to go into a Gentile house would have, would have been taboo. And so notice what he says, verse eight. Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. I mean, that, that is a, that is a, that's a, that's a declaration of, of, of great trust. But he continues with an analogy, for I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and, and I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And so he starts talking about authority, and so, so think about this response. Jesus has just said, hey, I'm gonna, I will come to your house to heal your servant, which is the thing the man wanted. And yet the centurion is set on telling Jesus why you don't have to come. And it's not because his house is a mess. He's not like, oh no, you can't see the inside of my house. Well, let's just take care of this now. No, no, no. It's because he knows you don't have to come. You don't have to be in my house to heal my servant. You can say it and it'll happen. And there's two points he makes. First, it's pretty easy to understand. I'm almost certain that you all got this one. He says, as a centurion, I have authority. And so the second point that, that he makes in, in, his, in his dialogue with Jesus, which is the first point I'm, I'm making here, is that he has soldiers under him. So when he says to a soldier, go, the soldier listens. Or to another, come, and he comes. So with one, uh, one with authority, people underneath his authority, listen to him. So that's the point he makes about his authority. And that's significant because he assumes Jesus has authority to heal a servant. But that's not the only point he makes. The other point that he makes, which even further emphasizes his faith, is what he says at the beginning of verse 9. I, too, am a man under authority. So, So he's saying, hey, we're the same I also am a man under authority. He not only assumes that Jesus has authority, which we just saw, but he also s- assumes that Jesus is under authority. And so, part of his argument the reason the centurion had authority wasn't, wasn't because of, of his stature or, or his character. People listened to the Roman centurion because he had been given authority from the emperor, he spoke and Rome spoke. He was under authority. He had been delegated, given authority to do whatever the Roman Empire wanted. So when he spoke, people listened. And so that's the point he's making with Jesus. The centurion recognizes that Jesus has authority unlike anyone else that's ever known, that he has ever known, even the emperor himself. And he's making the case that Jesus has divine authority to heal his suffering servant because he believes when Jesus speaks, there is real, genuine, legitimate authority and that Jesus has been sent by God and has the authority of God in whatever he says. So that when Jesus speaks, God speaks. I think that's what's implied here with the centurion. I think that makes sense because of how Jesus responds. When Jesus heard this, verse 10 I'm looking at, Jesus marveled. So he marveled at the faith of this centurion. Now he marvels at the unbelief of the Jews earlier, but he marvels at this man and he says to the crowd, to those who are following him, truly I tell you with no one in Israel have I found such faith. This Roman centurion perceives what is true about Jesus. He perceives and believes that Jesus has been sent by God on a divine mission and because of that, he knows he believes that Jesus can do whatever he wants even the impossible of healing from downtown, from a distance. And Jesus is astonished by this faith. And he comments on just how remarkable his faith is by contrasting it with the lack of faith that he's found among his own kinsmen, among the Jews. No one in Israel, he says, has displayed the faith that this Gentile Roman centurion has shown. And Jesus continues, this this is a harsh word. I tell you, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In other words, not at the table in the kingdom of heaven. They're gonna be thrown in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so what Matthew highlights here is the faith found in this Gentile centurion. Jesus marvels at the faith of this Roman soldier and he wants all to know that what gets you to the table with the patriarchs in the kingdom is not your race. It is your response to Jesus and the faith displayed by this centurion is gonna be what marks every person who's gathered at the great feast in the kingdom of heaven. So from east to west, non-Jews are gonna be gathered with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These are the patriarchs and and they're gonna be Gentiles gathered at the table because you're included by faith, not by race. This would have been shocking So not only are Gentiles going to be with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but Jesus continues, not only will they be there, those who possess the same faith as the centurion, but the sons of the kingdom, which would have been understood as the Jews, those who received the promises, those who were part of ethnic Israel, those who had a right to the kingdom, those, regardless of their race, regardless of their heritage, regardless of who they thought their father was, if they refused to recognize the true identity of Jesus, if they persisted in the unbelief they would miss the kingdom and be cast into hell. This is shocking. This is the significance of the life and ministry of Jesus, of this new covenant that is being instituted by his life and his ministry and his death and resurrection. It's clear from this interaction that faith, not race, is the criterion for membership in God's kingdom, which is good news for the Roman centurion and good news for us. It's how we respond to Jesus that, that gets us to the table The story concludes there in verse 13, centurion, to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Whereas the leper, Jesus healed by touch, here Jesus heals from a distance with with his words. The point not being the means of healing, but the one healing. This is the authority of Jesus miraculously healing those who are excluded or outcast or not thought to be part of the kingdom. Which leads to our third Healing, verses 14 and 15. So he goes from the, the leper to the centurion. To now we see Peter's mother-in-law. This is the Apostle Peter, which a side note, Peter was married. Right? That, that, that's, that's pretty clear from the New Testament. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 9 that, that Peter and some of the other apostles had wives. They were free to marry. The apostles were, which I think is a good argument against against a lot of the what the Roman Catholic Church has has built up around the, the, the person, the Apostle Peter. But here, Peter's mother-in-law is the person who's in need. So look at verse 14. When Jesus entered Peter's house, Peter has a good son-in-law, is, is taking care of his mother-in-law, and he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Verse 15: Jesus touched her hand, the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. So this healing, again, it's miraculous, but, but this is much much more brief. This, this is a straightforward. Jesus enters the house, sees a sick woman, touches her hand, and she's healed. So I don't know much about the, the specifics of her sickness other than Jesus touches her hand, the fever leaves her immediately, and there's evidence of her healing. She gets up and she starts serving Jesus. And so, for the third time in these verses, Jesus heals by his authority. He has this power, this miracle working power to heal those who are excluded or, or who are outcast or sick. And Matthew, to wrap up this section in verses 16 and 17, offers a summary of many other healings. And so, and so look at verse 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word. So, so there's many. So we've seen three and, and Matthew says, hey, by the way, there are many others who came. I, c- I could keep this chapter going indefinitely. So many others come and, and the demons and spirits are cast out and he healed all who are sick. I, mean, I don't know about you, but, but all means all. So all who came who are sick, Jesus healed and so, so Matthew wants us to know that, that what we've seen in this, this chapter, in these verses, these three snapshots are part of a much bigger picture. And so it's not abnormal, these three healings. In fact, this is the norm. Jesus is doing this all throughout his ministry. And he wants us to know that it's happening, but then he wants us to know why Jesus did this. And this is the whole point. This is the main point of this entire passage. Why does Jesus do it? Yeah, his ministry is focused on healing the oppressed and sick, on showing compassion to the excluded and outcasts. That's what he does, but, but why does he do it? Why was that the nature of his ministry? And that is the exact question that Matthew answers in verse 17. This, this, this meaning this healing ministry, all I've told you about in 1 through 17, or 1 through 15, and what I've just summarized in verse 16, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Quote, he took our illness and bore our diseases. And so Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah. Now, now Matthew is probably using his own translation or his own paraphrase because if you look at all the translations, whether it's the Septuagint or the, the Hebrew, this is not an exact quotation. But Matthew says, this was to fulfill what Isaiah said. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now now math, er, so Matthew points back to Isaiah 53, which is a well-known chapter. In fact, you've, you've certainly heard of it during Christmas time, but probably other times also. It's one of the most well-known chapters in the Old Testament when it comes to the prophecies or the predictions about the life and death of Jesus. And so there in Isaiah 53, it's often known as as the fourth servant song. And and this is the song of the suffering servant. And so Matthew cites verse 4 of Isaiah 53. And so let me just read to you the translations of, of, of Isaiah 53 verse four in, in a few different translations. So the ESV says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The NIV says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. The, the New American Standard says, however, it was our sicknesses that he himself bore and our pains that he carried. And so Matthew says, here's all that Jesus did and he did this to fulfill what Isaiah said. And so Matthew locates the healing ministry of Jesus within the job description of the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. Okay, so hopefully you're tracking with me. Matthew clearly associates the healing ministry of Jesus with the fulfillment of the grief-bearing, sorrow-carrying activity of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. So Matthew understands the griefs and sorrows, the pain and suffering, the sickness of his people as those things with G, which Jesus bore himself, which Jesus carried. You see that? that? That's what he's doing here. And my question is, when Jesus cleanses the leper, when he heals the paralyzed servant, when he relieves the fever of Peter's mother-in-laws, he heals them, yes. But it doesn't say he healed them. It said he carried them, he bore them. How can Matthew say that? I mean, Isaiah 53 says, he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He took up our pain and bore our suffering. He himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. How did he do that? Because in these accounts we just read in Matthew chapter eight, when Jesus heals someone, he doesn't become a leper. When he heals the man who's paralyzed, he doesn't become paralyzed. When he relieves the fever, he doesn't get a fever so, what does Matthew mean? How does Jesus bear and carry these diseases and sicknesses? I mean, I felt that question. What does he mean? Is he just some people say, well, he's just misquoting Isaiah 53. Matthew doesn't know what he's doing about it. That, that's not an option. So, what does he mean? How, how do we reconcile this? What Matthew means is that the ministry of Jesus, the, the miraculous ministry of healings and casting out demons and all demons and all the like, cannot be understood. Apart from everything else that Jesus said and did, most importantly, it cannot be understood apart from His death on the cross. Nothing that Jesus does is ever isolated. It's all connected. His words and his works are all pointing to what He had come to do, namely, to lay down his life, to suffer and die at the hands of sinful man. And So, so Matthew can reference Isaiah 53 and can say Jesus is the grief-bearing, sorrow-carrying king because Matthew, as he's writing, knows where this story ends. Matthew knows what the suffering servant did. But Matthew also knows Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is not primarily about the promised Messiah dealing with sickness and diseases. It's primarily the larger context of Isaiah 53 that Matthew was certainly referring to The larger context that his his audience would have certainly been familiar familiar with is that the suffering servant is going to be crucified and suffer on behalf of his people. I mean, just just listen. I'm going to read verses three through six of Isaiah 53, and you'll recognize these verses, but listen to the language here. What's the point of Isaiah in these verses? He, this, this promised one, the suffering servant, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men men hid their faces, he was despised, we esteemed him not. Surely, here's the verse Matthew uses, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse five, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And so the larger context of Isaiah 53, the main point of the chapter of Isaiah 53 is this, the suffering servant would suffer and die a substitutionary death. He would suffer for the transgressions and iniquities of others. He would be chastised in in such a way that others would, would receive peace. His wounds would bring healing to others. The iniquity of his people would be laid on him. The primary point of the prophecy of Isaiah 53 is that the suffering servant would suffer and die in the place of for the sins of his people. And it's in the death, in his death on the cross, that the ministry of the suffering servant is fully realized. And so Matthew, knowing where this ministry of Jesus is leading, knowing that Jesus is going to die on the cross is recounting the miraculous healings of Jesus already having seen the crucifixion and resurrection. And so he wants his readers to know, as they're reading Matthew eight, verses one through 17, he wants us to know, as we're studying Matthew eight, one through 17, he wants us to understand that all that Jesus does throughout his earthly ministry, his words and his works, are all pointing to his death on the cross. And so everything he does in healing is meant to point to what he's gonna do on the cross one commentator explains it this way. When when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, when he healed the centurion's servant, the leper, and all the others, he did so not merely out of the abundance of his power, which is rightly his, but he did so because he was to absorb in his own person, in his own act as a willing, atoning sacrifice, the sin bound up with his suffering. Precisely because the healings were done in anticipation of Calvary, They fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. You see, when Jesus performs these miracles, yes, his power and authority are on display as as the only son of God, but that's not the primary reason that, that he's performing these miracles. The primary purpose behind these miraculous healings is to point to or to anticipate what would be the source of his greatest act of healing, which would take place not by him speaking or reaching out his hand, but by his suffering. That is his greatest act of healing. It's the cross, and it's what everything is leading to. And here is the connection that Peter makes, and and I think this is a, a, a majestic connection to recognize, and it makes total sense of this. It helps make sense, total sense of what we've read. His death in our place on the cross for our sin addresses the source of all human sorrow and suffering. The reality is that underneath it all, sin is the source source of all disease and all suffering. At the end of the day, sin is the source of all leprosy and paralyzation and fever and demon possession and sickness. Sin is underneath it all and the source. The Bible does not lack clarity when it conveys the fact that sin is the source of all brokenness and suffering in this world. It is. Now, now sometimes, this is is a, a, a necessary distinction. Sometimes sin is a direct source of suffering. sometimes, and sometimes sin is an indirect source of suffering. Think about the man born blind. Disciples asked Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? Jesus said neither. So, so he was blind because he lived in a broken world and his eyes didn't work the way they're supposed to. And so, so that, sin is the indirect source of that suffering. Now, sometimes sin is the direct source of suffering. Uh, example would be 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 13 or 11 when Paul says some people have died because they're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. That is a direct result of sin. They, they're taking the, the Supper in an unworthy manner and the consequences is they die. Or the, the, the married couple who lied to the apostles and they're struck down. They die not because, hey, we live in a fallen world. They die because they lied. Okay, so, so do you see there's a difference? Now, sin is the source of both. Sometimes it's direct, sometimes it's indirect. And so a good place to start, if, if you are suffering to say, is there anything in me that's, that's bringing this about? Now you don't end there because that, that's often not the case, but sometimes it is. But regardless, the point is that sin is the source of all brokenness and suffering in the world. And Jesus comes into the broken world as Lord over all, and he does so to restore order, to take us back to Eden, or, or better than Eden, Eden 2.0. He comes as King of Kings to establish the kingdom of God here on earth, and He does so not primarily by by healing every disease and sickness throughout His earthly ministry, but by dealing with the root of the sorrow and suffering, by defeating sin itself through His death on the cross. I mean, did you ever th- stop to think about Peter's mother-in-law? Like, do you think she ever had a fever again? I mean, she's healed. Does she get sick again? I mean, probably. He, she's not removed from the fallen world. She's healed or, or maybe a better clear example would be Lazarus. I mean, do you ever wonder about Lazarus, the friend of Jesus in John chapter 11? He was raised from the dead. Now Lazarus at some point in his life, we don't know how long, but at some point he lay on a deathbed again. Now I wonder what Lazarus is thinking as, as he's nearing his death. Do you think Lazarus on his bed is saying that Jesus of Nazareth, I can't believe he conned me. I thought I never had to die again, and here I am about to die. His miracle didn't work. That Jesus, I can't believe him. Do you think that's what Lazarus thought? That wasn't his mindset. Of course not. Because the miracles during his earthly ministry were never intended to be an end in and of themselves. It was never finally about him being raised from the dead at that point, The signs were, the the miracles were always signs, pointers to the final and certain salvation, the final and certain act of healing that Jesus had come to accomplish, which would be accomplished through his death and resurrection, which, I mean, this is me speculating, but but I can imagine if, if Lazarus was thinking, I can't believe what Jesus, he lied to me. I can imagine his sister Martha, if she's still alive, coming in and saying, oh, oh, brother, Lazarus, don't you remember what Jesus told me? Let me me remind you, Jesus says he is the resurrection and the life. Jesus says whoever believes in him, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Jesus shall never die. Don't you believe this, Lazarus? That's what what Jesus told Martha when she was like, oh, my brother's going to die. And it's because you weren't here. Jesus said, no, I'm the resurrection. It's not about him being alive here now. It's about him being raised in the last day for eternal life. The, The signs are pointing to the final salvation that Jesus had come to accomplish. So Lazarus would die a second time, but those who believe in Jesus, though they die, yet shall they live. And everyone who believes will never die. I think that's the point of this passage. And while there are numerous potential applications from these verses, most of which I'm just just gonna leave for you to work through, and that's not a cop-out. It's because I don't want you to miss the main point. The main point as we leave this passage is recognizing that in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in the ministry of the king, we have a final solution for every single experience of human sorrow, suffering, and sickness. Jesus has died. We see in these verses that Jesus himself in these mighty works of healings pointed us to the mighty work that he would accomplish, the suffering that he would endure on the cross in our place. Therefore, believer, we rejoice in the death of Christ, in our place, on our behalf, paying the debt that we owed, addressing our greatest problem. Your sickness isn't your greatest problem. It's bad, but it's not your greatest problem. Jesus died dealing with your greatest problem, addressing your greatest need. We rejoice because Christ has died and Christ has risen. We rejoice in the gospel that sin has been defeated and death no longer has a hold on us. And we as his people, we look forward to the day with great hope to the day, the the coming day when every sorrow, when all suffering, when all disease and sin will be removed from the people of God forever. That's guaranteed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we have great hope. Now we suffer, then we don't. And we long for that day and we hold fast as long as we're here until we get to that day. But that is what animates us. That's our hope. And so I know there are some of you here who are suffering and you're tired and you're worn out or you're going through hard things. Brother, sister, cast your eye to Jesus, his death where, where he has died and risen again. And he promises eternal life free from sorrow and suffering. He promises a day when every tear Will be wiped away and every sorrow done away with. And that's our hope. Let's, let's pray.